It's your time to Ed Up with America's leading higher education podcast network, the Ed Up Experience, where we make education your business. This is Ed Up Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. She's Dean at St. Mary's School of Law, and she's going to be leading conversations about legal education in today's world. Now let's hear from your host, Patty Roberts. Welcome to Ed Up Legal. I'm Patty Roberts from St. Mary's University School of Law. And today I have with me two individuals who are working closely with um, ETS, the Educational Training Service. First is David Klieger. He is the Senior Research Scientist in the Center for Educational and Career Development at ETS. And then we also have with us Dan Rodriguez. He's the Harold Washington Professor of Law at um, Northwestern, a place where he served as Dean from January 2012 through August 2018. And among other things, he's currently serving as the chair of the Legal Education Advisory Committee for ETS and also provides them um, strategic advising. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. Likewise. Well, it's such a good time to have you since, of course, there's big news um, with ETS and legal education and the American Bar Association. Um, so let's just start by talking about um, the recent decision by the ABA that the GRE um, would be allowable in law school admissions as an alternative to the LSAT. David, and would you like to tell us a little bit about that process, how that unfolded, and what that means for law school admissions? Uh, I'd love to, thank you. So ETS uh, started uh, this initiative uh, back in uh, 2016, early 2016, when the University of Arizona School of Law came to us and asked if we could work with them and work with other law schools on helping uh, to innovate um, law school admissions. Um, because there was uh, a thought that uh, the GRE could bring a lot of additional value into law school admissions that doesn't already exist. And so we started working with the University of Arizona on uh, studies to uh, look at uh, the extent to which the GRE would be a good predictor of law school success. And that study went extremely well. And that led to other law schools becoming interested in our work. And uh, we worked uh, with uh, quite a lot of institutions. Um, and eventually we produced uh, for the American Bar Association and others um, a, what we call a, a, a large scale validity study where we looked at 21 different law schools, a very diverse group. And we examined the extent to which across those schools, the GRE was predictive of law school success. And in fact, the studies show that it, it very much was, and it was uh, just about as predictive, similarly predictive as um, the LSAT and, and notably more predictive than undergraduate uh, grade point average. And then there was a subsequent process for evaluating our research and uh, then we um, had a decision rendered by the American Bar Association back in November of last year. And they decided that yes, the GRE is, is valid and reliable and that it should be allowed uh, in lieu of 
the LSAT. And we were, we were delighted and we thought that clearly was the right decision. Um, well, and it gives options now to applicants and to law schools. It's, it's not an either or, um, now both are allowed, correct? Um, but I wanted to ask about the research studies that you did. You said you've, this has been going on several years now, um, your conversations with Arizona and with um, the ABA. Have you had your first students um, in the studies graduate and have you done some comparative analyses with graduates who took the GRE and were admitted versus those who took the LSAT and were admitted? We have spoken with many different uh, deans and directors uh, across law schools about their experiences with students who have been admitted under the GRE. And they say that these students are across the board performing well, and um, they're very happy about their decisions to start accepting the GRE and students with, with GRE scores. So uh, we, have, we have been hearing just uh, delighted uh, voices when it comes to, uh, to the GRE's introduction. So like many uh, law school graduates of decades ago, um, I took the LSAT, but I never took a GRE. And so can you tell our listeners um, a little bit about the, the different um, skills that might be tested between the two tests? So the GRE actually provides uh, three uh, separate scores uh, because it uh, assesses um, verbal ability, it assesses analytical writing ability, and it assesses uh, quantitative skills. And um, it looks at the extent to which uh, one uh, can successfully engage in analytical reasoning in a verbal context. Uh, it's very similar to some of what you see on the LSAT and a lot of other uh, higher educational assessments. And then there's the um, analytical writing section, which is, which is actually scored on the GRE, which is something that's rather innovative in uh, law school admissions because currently uh, there's nothing else uh, that you know is widely used in, in law school admissions that provides uh, that kind of information. So we provide uh, valid and reliable scores for um, two uh, essay uh, prompts that students uh, experience during the, the test. And basically the students uh, who are taking the test are demonstrating their abilities to analytically you know, reason uh, through writing and the ability to um, make an argument and make a per persuasive argument. And I, we think that that's perfect uh, for the law school context. And then there's the quantitative section. And we know that uh, there's increasing demand for uh, law students who have numeracy skills because we know that lawyers do deal with numbers uh, a lot. And we like to deny that, but yes, we do. <laughs> and we also know that um, you know STEM-based issues are increasingly salient for legal matters. We know you know the way the world has been moving. Um, you know there was a quote by uh, the former dean of Harvard Law School uh, a few years ago about how um, the GRE opens up a pipeline to individuals with STEM backgrounds, and so that does bring a, a great new source of diversity uh, into law schools. It also uh, can particularly help with intellectual property uh, programs that are looking for students with those backgrounds. And again, in general, um, there's a great importance uh, for having uh, these, these quantitative uh, skills to be successful 
you know, in the current uh, legal world. Thank you. Let me turn to Dan now. You know, you were Dean of Northwestern. You were also Dean of the University of San Diego School of Law. So you come to this um, with a lot of legal education experience and Dean leadership. Um, what do you say to deans who are wondering, should I take or accept the GRE in addition to the LSAT? So just again, by, thank you for having me. By way of context, just, just to clarify what might be a little confusing in the, in the timeline. As, uh, as David mentioned, uh, Arizona was the first school to decide to use the GRE and what and and uh, while the ABA didn't had no particular rule on that subject, uh, that 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 they were permitted to do. Harvard was the second school that that uh, agreed to adopt the GRE, and we were the third during the tier, a period of time in which uh, I was uh, I, I I was dean. And since then, prior to the ABA's ruling in November of last year, uh, David would have the exact number, but I think upwards of sixty more than sixty schools had been. Uh, using the GRE as part of their admissions process. So, so I mean, my own sense, having walked the walk, I'll, I'll talk the talk and say, my, uh, my advice to, to fellow deans had been from the time that we were accepting the GRE. Uh, I had nothing to do with ETFs, by the way, back, back then. That was just a, a judgment that was really built on two pillars. One is alternatives are, are advantageous. Uh, 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 contrary to what sometimes uh, is believed uh, out there. The LSAT has never been required as, a, as an admissions test. All that the ABA rules, 503 to be exact, requires is a valid and reliable admissions test. It just so happens that uh, the LSAT was the only test that uh, had been developed uh, and of course was developed specifically for law school. And so th those, that was the, the, the test that uh, met the criteria for valid and reliable. Having an alternative, the GRE being an alternative, uh, by its own, I think by its own nature, gives uh, uh, students uh, more choices and brings in a more diverse cohort. It's also a large cohort. There are many, many students who take the GRE, maybe thinking about law school or maybe even not thinking about law school in particular. So the barriers to entry, as it were, of having a student who is thinking about law school but not sure where they want to go have to take an entirely different test, the LSAT, uh, I think is problematic. The second, uh, David is a reason that I would give to, to deans, uh, David really already covered and I would just echo, and that is uh, one hopes that the pipeline, uh, given the very large number of students who take the GRE, uh, pro provides an opportunity for law schools to be able to look at a wider and more diverse group of students students with STEM backgrounds, students who might be pursuing uh, dual degrees, uh, uh, students from internationally, uh, a, a large cohort that, uh, that gives the law schools more diversity in considering admissions. I read recently that, the, um, that ETS established a legal education advisory committee. I understand you are the chair of that committee. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what the purpose of the committee is and if, others who are interested, who are in the academy and as professors or deans could get involved in that work? Sure, so, so I, I can, you, you mentioned my work uh, with ETS and, and this goes back more than a year and, and I was, uh, uh, they reached out to me to help assist them in basically having the same kind of dialogue that you and I have just been having about why the GRE and what, what are some of the advantages associated with the GRE. My work uh, evolved 
into a, a wider set of issues. And really thanks to the leadership within ETS, they saw their engagement with law schools, building on their engagement with business schools as well, as involving uh, what one leader in ETS has called the entire life cycle of student experience. So including certainly, but not limited to admissions testing and the GRE and thinking about various initiatives that time permitting we could talk about, but I'll just simply describe them as involving matters of, of, of assessment, student development, uh, pre-law pipeline uh, initiatives, who knows, maybe a career uh, strategy uh, uh, mechanisms, basically to improve the experience for law students on the one hand, but also to improve the experience of, of, of law schools on the other. So what we thought we would do is create, as you say, a legal education advisory committee made up of uh, various stakeholders in legal education, including but not limited to deans, admissions professionals, those involved in professional development, uh, uh, individuals in, involved in so-called DEI, you know, diversity and inclusion initiatives, to, to help uh, render advice, to, to be a sounding board, uh, to talk to ETS uh, leadership and staff about what our needs are in legal education, uh, what are some of the comparative advantages uh, that ETS uh, uh, as an organization could provide, and how there could be a really a, a, a melding of objectives and goals on ETS's part and on, uh, on uh, law school's part, uh, part uh, as well. So we've just started, and, and we're delighted uh, to have been able to recruit uh, an illustrious group. And uh, I don't speak for ETS, but, but I hope their, their uh, belief, and I trust their belief will be, they're all ears and they're anxious to, to get feedback and, uh, and, uh, and advice. It is an impressive group. And if there are others out there who wanna get involved, should they reach out to you? Absolutely. I think, I think that uh, uh, we're, we're anxious to really charged up uh, with a lot of enthusiasm and momentum and uh, really anxious to, to get uh, feedback and, and, uh, and ideas to, uh, to reach the audience of, of, of uh, eager uh, leadership at, uh, at ETS. So uh, I'd be happy to have folks write me directly in my email address at Northwestern. Great. And um, David, I know one of the initiatives that ETS has um, undertaken is the partnership with the University of Arizona Law School on JD Next, which prepares law school aspirants for the academic rigors of law school. Our own students uh, took part in this this past summer. We were very delighted with it and we'll be engaging in that again. It's a it's a wonderful service to provide. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? And then I thought we might talk about your PSQ initiative. Okay, great. So JD Next um, is an opportunity for um, aspirants uh, to law school to preview what law school is going to be like. Um, also to um, have um, an experience that better uh, prepares them for the rigors, the academic rigors of law school. And then it also potentially provides um, a, uh, you know, an exam, a final exam on which performance might be an indicator of likelihood of, of success in, in law school. Um, you know, JD Next uh, was um, launched with the idea that you know, a lot of individuals, they wind up in law school and they really uh, struggle because they don't uh, know, you know in advance you know, what law school is going to require in terms of, you know, the kinds of thinking, critical thinking, 
uh, that students are expected to demonstrate in law school. And so the thought was, well, why not, you know, give them some advanced preparation? And also, again, gives them a preview. So maybe they can decide, hey, you know, law school is really for me. Or, you know, maybe it's not, you know, it's not for me. And um, in addition, again, there may be this opportunity for um, individuals to show, you know, through what is kind of like a true law school exam, the final exam in JD Next, you know, that they can, in fact, uh, really navigate well uh, the requirements of law school if they if they're admitted. So we uh, partnered with the uh, University of Arizona on this uh, because we think it's just a wonderful idea. We think it has uh, potential to maybe help with, uh, with, with many of the uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion issues that uh, schools struggle with. Um, we think that um, individuals from traditionally historically underrepresented groups, there are particular you know, disadvantages uh, in terms of you know, knowing what law school is gonna be like. They may not have um, family members or friends or peers who they can you know, ask, you know, what, what was it like? How should I prepare? Um, they may not have people, individuals to provide them with guidance. And you know, here's an opportunity potentially to, um, to make the, the playing field a little bit more equal. And so that uh, is another, I think, wonderful aspect that uh, JD Next can bring. And um, we think that um, it's, it's something that can be seen both as a, a benefit to law schools that are interested in having um, students who are better prepared for having greater diversity. Uh, we also think that it's an opportunity for individuals to shine, to uh, again, to understand whether this is for them to be better prepared. Uh, and again, to show that, um, you know, there really are a strong candidate uh, for, for law school. So uh, we continue to work with the University of Arizona and we look forward to a very uh, successful future on this. Well, I, I really applaud you for doing that. One of the things that um, we started last year was a first generation boot camp um, with the, the same thoughts in mind. We're a Hispanic serving institution and so many of our students come in uh, at a very uneven playing field. Um, you know, they all start orientation together, but the, uh, the child whose parent is a lawyer or law professor has a different experience and even different vocabulary, different understanding, different expectations than the person who didn't have a lawyer in their family or didn't know a lawyer um, and is being introduced to that at, for the first time when they hit campus. So thank you for doing that. Um, and uh, we're looking forward to participating again. For my law school colleagues out there, uh, there's no charge for law schools to participate. Um, so thanks for that. And then you're also engaging in something called the PSQ initiative that's under development. Tell us more about that. So, you know, so PSQ, um, it is a soft skills um, assessment that uh, is under development and we uh, see it as potentially being very useful to help um, enrolled students develop their soft skills. Um, also, it you know, potentially could be used in admissions. Um, it may be another way for individuals to um, signal that they're uh, a great candidate uh, in addition to the other information that they can provide in an application. Uh, we think it's also another opportunity to help with diversity, equity, and inclusion. I mean, there's a lot of research that shows that, you know, performance on these uh, kinds of soft skills measures uh, is very fair across different um, demographic groups. Um, and so, 
and that it in fact um, can advantage uh, you know individuals who have that maybe greater resilience or or what have you because they've faced you know greater um, greater challenges uh, in in their past. So we we you know have a lot of optimism that PSQ will help in that regard. And in general, those kinds of soft skills are I, we we know based on research uh, are important for both academic success and employment success. Um, it's not just about your technical skills, it's also about your ability to you know, understand people, interface with people, your ability to work uh, on teams successfully, your ability to provide leadership, to persevere through hardship. I mean, all of those things are very important. And right now there really isn't any great measure out there of you know, these things for use in admissions or you know, in terms of uh, formal development of, of student skills. We know that legal employers are looking for these skills as well as uh, law schools. Is the idea that you might also develop some um, modules or educational programming to address some of those soft skills in addition to assessment? Well, PSQ is an ongoing uh, developmental effort. So we are uh, focusing on uh, the assessment itself. We're focusing on um, enhanced score reporting, and we are uh, looking to the future in terms of potential interventions that can be used to help uh, students, enrolled students, develop the skills that are important for, for vocational success. So we are looking at that entire uh, pipeline. And given your role as senior research scientist, I assume this will all be research-based and evidence-based. That is, so historically ETS has always been uh, very focused on quality and it will continue to uh, remain heavily focused on quality. And so research does play a very big role in the development of all of our assessments, including PSQ. And we don't just um, think about what we think is important, but we actually talk with schools and we talk with students, we talk with deans, we wanna know what they think is important and we want to, we are, are always seeking their opinions and perspectives on everything uh, that we're doing. So it's really a, a collaborative cooperative effort in that regard. So you've um, moved forward with uh, getting the GRE approved as an admission, uh, as an additional admission um, test for law schools, and you're developing the PSQ and you've done JD next. Um, what are some other areas that law schools have indicated are um, topics that they would like you to address or initiatives that you, they'd like you to focus on? And this would be for either one of you or both. Well, I, I, I'll jump in on this because I have an easier role in this regard because I can, I can develop a wish list and don't have to do the hard work that David and his colleagues do of deciding you know, how, how it congruent it is with ETS's mission and resources and all of that. But, but certainly uh, my, my own self, in my law school and others, deans that I talk to, you know, we, we I'll say we, you're here, uh, dean of terrific law school, you know, are, are, are hungry for uh, help in, uh, again, I used the term life cycle before in the student uh, life cycle. We're certainly hungry for uh, recruiting uh, students and identifying pockets of underserved, uh, uh, again, traditionally disadvantaged, you mentioned first generation students, that was my experience as a law student, in, in all the ways you described, and, uh, and developing initiatives that help in, you know, it's a tired phrase, but it's an accurate one, the pipeline. 
And uh, sometimes that is identifying undercap markets. Other times it's encouraging uh, uh, folks who might not think of themselves as, as going to law school and becoming lawyers to think about that. And there's, there's a quantitative and social science dimension to that. I think this is where I mentioned, uh, I said comparative advantage before, and I really mean this. What, what ETS has is a terrific group of, of research scientists. They've been at this for quite a long time, uh, not, not only in the area of, uh, of testing. And so law schools need that kind of help to identify, I think, those. The others uh, that I'd mention is, maybe this is a little more of a bit of a moonshot, but the kind of career development that enables uh, students not only to do what we need them to do, which is to successfully complete law school and to pass a bar examination, but to hit the ground running uh, when they uh, join the profession. If law schools do uh, maybe a B plus job collectively in, in uh, applying social science methods to, uh, you know, to student development, uh, law firms and, and lawyers don't do a much better job. In fact, in many ways, a less good a job. So law, this trilogy, right, this trio of, of employers, small or not so small, uh, public and private, law schools and stakeholders in law schools, including deans and, and others who work in the student development one, and an organization with the, with the heft and the, and the ingenuity of ETS, I think is, a, is, a, is a potentially a great partnership to work on a number of initiatives uh, that even go beyond the uh, holistic admissions process that, of course, the GRE helps, helps, uh, helps, uh, helps serve. Well, those are some ambitious goals and uh, collaborative efforts. So, David, I hope you're up for the task. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, the, uh, we've talked a, a good deal about what ETS is already doing, what they're working on, uh, what Dan, other deans in the Legal Education Advisory Committee might like you to focus on in the future. And the future is what I want to ask about next. I wrap up each episode by asking our guests, what do you predict legal education will look like a decade from now? And there's kind of a second part to that because what we think it might look like and what we think it should look like might be two different things. So what do you think it's going to look like 10 years from now? How do you think it will change, if at all? And uh, how should it change? So I think that um, there's an increasing recognition that legal education needs to be uh, more focused on uh, preparing uh, law school students for careers and not just in the traditional sense, but also in a, in a broader sense uh, that students, uh, you know, they graduate from law school. Um, they may or may not be well prepared to uh, pass the bar exam. And then even if they pass the bar exam, they may not be uh, optimally prepared for success in an actual legal career. And I think employers are putting increasing pressure on law schools to be able to um, you know, deliver on uh, providing those uh, other skills that are important, not just you know, what's demonstrated on a law school exam. I also uh, believe uh, that, um, and this is related to this comment, that soft skills will be uh, increasingly uh, a focus of uh, legal preparation, um, maybe some more uh, practical skills, the types of uh, things that, that lawyers actually do on the job may become uh, more a part of legal education and not just maybe an optional you know, class that you know, is less focused on uh, in the curriculum. I, I think also diversity, equity, and inclusion is, is going to continue to be an important issue. Um, 
and I, I don't think these issues are, are going to, uh, you know, are going to go away. I think uh, legal education is going to have to become more responsive to what is actually being uh, required uh, to have a successful career. And, you know, law school is not getting, um, in general, less expensive. It's getting more expensive. And I think there's going to be more pressure on um, the system to be able to show that it's, you know, delivering value in return uh, for, you know, for the costs. And I, I, I do believe that that is the way it's it's going to go. And, and that's certainly, I think, the way it should go, because uh, I think that the system should be responsive uh, to, uh, you know, to the demands that uh, that exist out there. I think value should be uh, provided to uh, the law students and uh, to the legal education system. Thank you. Dan, do you have any thoughts to add to that? Well, I very much adding, because I agree with everything that David said, both from a descriptive predictive crystal ball point of view, and also from a normative point of view. So I completely associate myself with those comments. So I'll add a couple, uh, maybe a little more off the wall. I, I think that law schools will become, uh, will continue, this, this is less off the wall, will become increasingly multidisciplinary. Uh, that's, yes. that's been a long uh, uh, period of time in which that's been the case at, at all of our law schools, some, some at different paces, but understanding that you know, law is not hermetically sealed sort of body of knowledge from other fields. We'll see that continue to penetrate into legal education as it has in legal scholarship. Uh, I think law schools will become more pluralistic and, and rightly so. There's still, we, we, we hate to admit it to ourselves, but we're still chasing sort of a model of what, uh, of what a, a law school looks like. We tend to associate that with you know, the most highly ranked schools and, and, and uh, means law schools are slow to change. But your law school, my law school, the other law school that I, uh, University of San Diego, where I served as dean, you know, we uh, most of us are regional law schools, and proudly so. That doesn't mean we're we're teaching our students only with sort of bit of practice that's limited to Texas or Illinois. That's not the point. But we serve missions and objectives that are different than Yale Law School serves, and then Loyola Law School in Los Angeles serves. And we should embrace those distinct missions. And I think law schools will start to become much more pluralistic. And, uh, and tied to the missions and objectives of the, of the employers uh, uh, that are hiring our graduates. Uh, where do I think it should go? One, one added element that I'll mention that's, uh, I guess I intend to be somewhat provocative in saying this, is I think there will be a, a, a plurality of degrees and programs uh, in the coming years. So, you know, we all are in the business of training students for the, for the J, with the JD to graduate from our school and to take a passive bar exam and then go into the legal profession. We're already seeing the rise of you know, master's programs, certainly LLM programs, foreign training uh, programs for lawyers, all of that. I think the bar is gonna become very destabilized. It's gonna open itself up to alternative legal service providers to, a, a, to an increasing degree. And I think law schools are gonna, are quite properly, are gonna get into that process. And so, so I think what schools will do 10 years from now, I think maybe you mentioned 10 years, or maybe I made that up, but in the future is they will be providing education, right. not only for students pursuing a JD degree, but students who might be alternative legal service providers or work in the legal technology field or, or will be, be doing many, many different things that don't necessarily require the traditional credentialing of, uh, of a practicing, uh, practicing lawyer. I think that'll be a good development, but it'll be very complicated and uh, require some very significant adjustments to our business model and our educational model. But I, I, think, I, I think the time has come for that kind of change. 
Well, I really appreciate that. I think if you had said that maybe five years ago, it would have been much more provocative, but I know we've been doing master's um, of jurisprudence degrees here for six years. Arizona has been doing it. I think Northwestern is doing it. I mean, many, many sure. schools across the country. Yeah. And you're exactly right. Not everyone needs the license to practice and represent individuals, but so many careers could benefit from legal expertise. So um, I, I think you're right. And it's, it's going to take all of us figuring out how to evolve in a way that provides a quality um, educational experience and expertise relative to the level of uh, involvement people will have in the law. We've got to diversify our offerings and, and training because one size won't fit all. And then we'll increase access to justice as a result. I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I, I wanted to mention that access to justice and the demands of consumers, not just the well-being of lawyers, is, is hopefully going to be a key part of our future. And uh, uh, law schools need to be responsive to that. And I think we'll be. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen. This has really been enjoyable. I've enjoyed learning more about ETS and hearing about the, the new initiatives you have going on and the partnership with um, law school leaders uh, through the Legal Education Advisory Committee. Uh, and I'll be watching um, enthusiastically. So thank you so much. Thank you for thank having you. us. Thank you for the good work you're doing on this, uh, in this series. Thank you. This has been another episode of EdUp Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. EdUp Legal is part of the EdUp Experience Podcast Network, bringing you the brightest and most influential minds across higher education and beyond. Here at EdUp, we make education your business.